So there was this guy who won a safari trip to South Africa. He was living in the Chicago suburbs, and he won this trip, and he was looking forward to it. He's really excited about it. Uh, he, in the days and weeks ahead, prepared. He got the best camera. He wanted to take pictures of all this wildlife. He was all set to go on this safari. So he landed. They get into the vehicle. Uh, the person leading the safari gives them instructions. They hop in, and away they go. They start driving off into the uh, African landscape. The setting was gorgeous. The sun was amazing. The uh, nature that they saw was great. But as they were driving, something was missing, and it was the African wildlife. There was no animals to be found everywhere. 45 minutes goes by, they're still driving, looking for animals. And by this time, the driver and the tour guide is starting to sweat. He's getting nervous. He's trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? These people came all this way. They want to see wildlife, and there's none out here. And then all of a sudden, he saw a duck. There was a duck to the right, and he made this huge deal. Look, in this pond, there's a duck. And they get up there, and they look at the duck, and they, people in the vehicle thought, well, looks a lot like the ducks in the United States of America, but okay, there's a duck. And then they kept driving. And as they drove, all of a sudden, the tour guide's radio starts going crazy. And he listens and they say, there's a lion. You got to take the group to see the lion. So he says, okay. So he says, where's the lion? He gets the location of the lion. They turn around, they go back and the lion was in the exact same spot as the duck, but the duck was on one side of the road, and the lion was on the other side of the road. And they looked, and they saw on the other side of the road, under the tree, here was this majestic lion, full mane. They even caught him uh, yawning, sitting there underneath this tree. And then they found out that the lion was there for hours, so the whole time they were looking at the duck, behind them was a lion. Spiritually speaking, we do that same thing all the time. We have this glorious, amazing, life-transforming, as we saw today, truth called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But when we go into this life, we get caught up in all these little tiny things. We give our lives and our attention and our energy to all these little things when all the while as Christians, the truth and the amazing glory that Jesus Christ is no longer dead but is alive is right there for us to behold and grab. But we waste so much time and pain getting caught up in these little things. And what we're going to talk about this morning is a big deal. It's such a big deal that the Apostle Paul said, without this, Christianity is useless. He said that in 1 Corinthians 15. And what we're going to talk about this morning is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is useless. And we no longer have to fear death because Jesus rose from the death, because we now can have a resurrected life. So how do we have a resurrected life? You might be saying, I didn't die, so I can't rise from the dead. So why do you say we as believers can have a resurrected life? I'm going to go theological on you for a second. Hang on, because if you grab this truth as a Christian, it will change and transform your thinking and your life. There is a blessed doctrine 
called the doctrine of the union of Jesus. And when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, when you repent and believe, you are united with Christ, which means whatever happens to Jesus positionally before God happens with you. And it's positionally now, but when Christ returns, it becomes reality for the Christian. You are in union. That's why Paul in Romans 5 said, you are dead to sin in Christ. And you might say, but I keep sinning, so how could that be? Because of union, Christ was the sinless Savior, and you are unified when you are a Christian to the power and the life of Jesus. He says it again in Ephesians where he says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And you might say, I'm not seated with Christ, I'm right here in Wisconsin Rapids. No, you are seated because you are in union with Christ. When you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you are brought into union with Christ. It's the working out of what Damarie shared in, in today in John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branch. If the vine remained dead, the van- branches would remain dead as well, but the vine is alive because Jesus rose from the dead. And so because of that, we no longer have to fear death. We had abundant life in this life and eternal life in the life to come. We are united when we repent and believe and follow Jesus. We are reunited with our Savior, and it will never, life will never, ever be the same from that point on if we remember and live for the glory of the lion and not get caught up in the little ducks of life. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Mark 15. We are wrapping up our series called Amazed. We've, some of you know we've gone through the book of Mark. We started in the spring. We went chapter by chapter, and now we're bringing it to a close. And there's no better thing to bring to the close than this amazing truth of the resurrection. So we're going to look at Mark 15, 42 to chapter 16, verse 8. So I encourage you to turn there. We're calling this the resurrected king. What a great, great thought as we wrap this up. I want to walk through and share two things with you in this passage. The first thing we want to talk about is the reality of Jesus' death. We can't talk about the resurrection unless we talk about the reality of Jesus' death. So on Mark chapter 15, let's look at the first two verses of our text this morning, 42 and 43. It says, When it was already evening, Because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Okay, Jesus died on a Friday at 3 p.m. The Jewish Sabbath began at sundown, roughly 6 p.m. on Friday. Once you hit 6 p.m. on Friday, if you are a Jewish person, you can't work or do anything anymore. Sabbath means stop. And so what would happen is once the sun set on Friday around 6 p.m., they would gather as a family, they would share a meal, they would have an extended time of rest and reflection, thanking God for his provision and for his protection. That would start Friday at 6 p.m. Thursday at 6 p.m., leading up to Friday at 6 p.m., was called the day of preparation. 
They would get ready for this Sabbath so they didn't have to work. They would cook twice the food so you didn't have to cook a meal on Sabbath. You would make sure the livestock that you had had twice the amount of feed so you didn't have to go out and feed the animals. You'd make sure you had twice the amount of wood you would need to heat your home so you didn't have to do that on Sabbath. You prepared for the Sabbath. That was the preparation day. The Jewish people also had a law during that preparation time that's spoken about in Deuteronomy 21, where if a person was executed, the body had to be put into a tomb before the Sabbath began. It was an abomination to leave an exposed body, especially after an execution, up during the Sabbath. So the followers of Jesus were pressed to take his body down and get it into a tomb before nightfall on Friday. And Mark introduces us to a very interesting person. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you remember and you watched the sermon last week, we talked about how the Sanhedrin were the ones, the group of religious leaders, who made up these charges against Jesus and kind of created this sham of a court to try to get him put to death. And this shows us that not everybody in the Sanhedrin hated Jesus. Because Joseph of Amarathea was in that group. Luke 23 says he was good and righteous and not consenting to what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus. John 19.38 says that he was a disciple, but he was a secret disciple. He lived his discipleship in secret. We knew he was too frightened to stand with Jesus when he was on trial He didn't want to risk the rejection that he would get. But perhaps watching Jesus changed him. Perhaps watching Jesus die on the cross changed his heart and changed his perspective. You know, that can happen. One of the things that pulls us away from the duck into the lion is when we reflect upon who Jesus is, we get a correction of our vision. This happened We can see it in Mark 15. If you look a few verses before where we started in verse 39, it says, When the centurion, this Roman guard, who was standing opposite Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The death of Jesus transformed the most hardened skeptic. And out of this, this centurion, this Roman guard, declares what we've been seeing all through the book of Mark, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so maybe in this moment, Joseph of Amarathea sees this and says, I have the boldness now to step forward. So they ask Pilate to care for the body. And on this particular Sabbath, it was Passover, which is a Jewish holiday. And Pilate did not want to have an uprising among the Jewish people, so he was going to comply and make sure that this goes well. And he said, yes, look at verses 44 to 45. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. John tells us that Joseph had a team of help. They did not have a lot of time. The sun was setting. 
They wanted to get Jesus' body into some sort of tomb before the sun set, so they didn't have time to do all the ceremonial laws that they were supposed to, but they said, we're going to do the best we can. So this team came, and before nightfall, they rinsed Jesus' body, they anointed it with oil and spices, they wrapped it in a linen cloth, and as best they could with Jewish burial customs, they placed the body in a tomb. Now, they probably, when they were doing this, had no idea what tomb they're going to put him in. That arrangement probably wasn't made. But Joseph had a tomb for his family, and he said, let's put him in my family's tomb. And so they went, and they put him in the tomb, and they rolled the rock to cover the stone, the tomb. The stone, which is about one ton, covered the tomb. Now, people talk a lot about how does that get open? Why is it so easy to close? In that day, they engineered it such that there was a groove along the rock ledge that was about outside the opening, and they used gravity. So they pitched it down so that to close the tomb, it just took a shove, and this rock would roll down this groove and stop at the end, and the tomb would be closed. It didn't take much in terms of strength to move that rock and close it. However, to push it back up that uh, ledge would have taken a lot. So they got him in the tomb. This is an important note. Mark wanted this to be said. He wanted it shown that it was proven that by the centurion that Christ had died. The Romans gained nothing by lying about the fact that Jesus died. If Jesus was alive and they lied about it they, and it was found out, they would have been put to death. They gained nothing by making up this story. And in John 19 it says, just to make sure the centurion drove a spear through Jesus' side. Now, this is important because people could and still do try to disprove the resurrection, but the evidence is the crucifixion expert of the day certified Jesus' death, which was important in the Roman Empire times. So Pilate released his body. Look at verses 46 to 47. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen, then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. It says when this was happening, Mary and Mary were watching. They were looking. This is a Greek term for watching, and what this watching means is to examine with sustained attention for the purpose of gaining understanding. They were trying to figure out what in the world just happened. They were trying to figure out what was going on. They experienced this traumatic day where they saw Jesus crucified on the cross, and they were trying to make sense of it all. They were stunned. We have a hard time making sense of it as well. Imagine if you were there. They had a hard time making sense of wrath. Wrath not from humans, but from a holy God is what killed Jesus on the cross. Wrath is what killed Jesus on the cross because on the cross, Jesus took your sin and my sin and he was crucified on the cross. And when he became our sin, a holy and just God took 
the wrath and punishment which should have went to us as the human race that betrayed him, and he poured it upon his son, Jesus, on the cross. So the wrath of God was poured upon Christ, which caused him to say, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Jesus absorbed the wrath that was supposed to be ours, and it resulted in his death. Wrath is what killed him. In their book, The Genesis of Liberation, Historians and scholars Emerson Powery and Rodney Sadler explore what they call the miracle. And the miracle they talk about is how many African-American slaves came to faith in Jesus Christ. For most of the African-American slaves, Jesus was the slave owner's savior. Because the slave owners would use Jesus in the Bible to wrongly pacify slaves and justify their enslavement. Miraculously, Many African Americans, though not all, became Christians and attributed authority to God in the Bible. But the question remains, why? Why did enslaved African Americans embrace the religion of their slave owners? They found a simple answer. They fell in love with the God of Scripture. In Christ, they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. They write that in the Bible, they found not just an outwardly God who gives spiritual blessings, but a here and now God that can empathize with the pain and suffering because he's a suffering Savior who suffered and struggled in his earthly life and then went to a cross to satisfy the wrath of God. As they came in contact with that Jesus, they found a different reality. They found the reality of resurrection power. It was the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection that created a community of faith with these enslaved African Americans. The resurrection had proved its power, and one evidence of that is there were Christians, even among African-American slaves. The power of the resurrection transforms. The power of Jesus transforms. And it breaks forth into a hope. Let's look at the reality of the resurrection in chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Let's look at the first three verses of that text. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? When we combine the gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and Mark, we find that several women went to complete the burial process of Jesus. Remember, before the Sabbath, Joseph and his team had a hurry. They couldn't do everything. And now a group of women were going to finish what was required. They brought 75 pounds of perfumed resins. But then they saw the stone. And as I mentioned to you, easy to close, almost impossible to open. To open would take an army and levers and wedges and all these kinds of things. And the ladies would ask the question, who is going to open the grave? Who will move the stone? It was a legitimate question to ask. Look at verse 4 to 7. 
Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. The women reached the tomb. The stone was rolled away, and that was confusing to them. It would be. They probably thought, who did that? Did someone else come to finish this off? Who could move this away? But then they looked inside, and they saw there was no human body there. It was an empty tomb. And Mary Magdalene left immediately to run and find Peter and John and the others. And I love the fact that it says they found Peter. We're going to get to that in a second. But Peter, who rejected him, is now included in his disciples. But as they looked into the tomb, they saw this young man dressed in white. And we are right to assume that this was a supernatural presence. This was a messenger from heaven. This was an angel from heaven declaring the truth of what happened, that Jesus is no longer in a tomb because he is alive. And look at the women's reaction in verse 5. It says they were alarmed. They were shocked. They were in an emotional state of great surprise. They were coming to complete a burial process, and now the body isn't even there. Shocked amazed, startled, even scared. What in the world happened? All of these emotions were felt and the angel was there to reassure them. He is alive. He is risen. And go tell Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter. Remember last week we talked about how Peter denied him. Now, Peter, in that denial, probably thought, I can't even be numbered among the disciples. He's separated in this statement. Go tell the disciples and Peter, because Peter is going to be radically transformed by the power of the resurrection, by the power of the resurrected Jesus, to the point where he would go and eventually be crucified upside down by the emperor Nero. You see, when Jesus was going to trial, he didn't have the guts to stand with him and deny him three times. But that wasn't the end of the story for Peter because Peter's life on earth ends by going through a horrible, horrible death in the name of Jesus that if he denied him, he would have been freed from that death. But he took the sentence of death all the way to crucifixion upside down. See, that's a life transformed. We saw it today. Those being baptized, life transformed transformed by the power of a resurrected Savior. You see, death did not interrupt God's plan. God's agenda can never, ever die. The plan of redemption, the reign of Messiah who would come and take away the sin of the world, the kingdom of God would all be accomplished. And now it was uh, enunciated with death-defying power in the Savior of Jesus Christ. And look at the reaction in verse 8. They went out and ran from the tomb because, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. When God moves powerfully in human presence, 
Human senses are overloaded. They can't contain the power of God. And often the result is fear. And Mark ends this section with haunting words that these women were beside themselves on the brink of emotional collapse as any of us would be. But here is the deal. Anyone reading this letter in the first century would have known that these women, shaken to their core, would find their voices and overcome the fear and declare what God did. We see this in Matthew chapter 28. So departing quickly from the tomb, these ladies, with great fear and what? Great joy. They ran to tell his disciples the news. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a secret too wonderful to keep quiet. The resurrection of Jesus was a secret too wonderful to keep. Fear turned into joy, and they left, and they ran. And you know what happened? They ran into an unexpected person. Just then, Jesus met them. And he said, greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. They worshipped the one who had been risen from the dead. Do you think that experience changed their lives? Do you think that experience changed how they viewed the world around them? Do you think that experience changed how they related to family and friends and coworkers and people that they lived with in their neighborhood? It changed everything for them. From that moment on, the world had changed because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity, and it changes everything. And it changes our lives as well because when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we are united with this resurrected Savior. Eugene Peterson says, living the Christian life daily means that we practice the resurrection. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean like we practice the resurrection like we pretend like we die and we practice what it's like. To, and it does, it's not talking about like athletic sports practice or practicing multiplication tables. He talks about practicing the resurrection like a doctor practices medicine. It's what you do. You are all in with your life. You're always thinking, investigating, talking, preaching to yourself about how Jesus lived this life, died and went to a cross, was buried, and he rose again. So how do we do that? How do we practice the resurrection? We had two great examples today. We had baptism. In a moment, we're going to have communion. Baptism and communion are symbols given to the church to remember this most important thing that we should be focused on. In baptism, we have symbolized the death of Christ as you go into the water, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ as they come out. In communion, you have the body and the blood of Christ. It was broken for us. These are to remind us to live and practice the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus every day of our life. Another way we live this out is we don't disconnect the resurrection from daily life. Sometimes we take the resurrection of Jesus and we shelve it and we look at little ducks. And when we shelve it, we think it's a church thing or it's an Easter thing. And once in a while, I'll come and look at it. And in the, men, and in the meantime, we get confused and caught up with things that don't matter, things that are less than. 
but bring the reality of a resurrected Jesus into your mind as you work your job, as you relate to friends, as you raise your children, as you have conversations, as you shop for groceries. The reality of the resurrection Jesus is meant to be centered in the minds and hearts of God's people. And our hearts will reflect that as we live out this life. I want to close with three gospel words that will help us connect this. Three gospel words. The first one is repent. Repent is often looked at as a bad word, but it's a beautiful word. Repent means to turn. It's an action word. It means to change direction. It means to change your way of thinking. It means to change your way of imagining. It means to leave the clutter and the sin and the soul pollution of this world and the stuff that gets inside of us. To leave the pollution of a busy life and the filth caused by an ego and a brokenness and stop and turn to your risen Savior We start living the resurrected life not by adding something, but by leaving something. We repent and we turn. We leave the attractive things that promise life but lead to death. And we turn towards life. It means that we regularly confess our sin before God. But it also is a marker of that first initial decision to turn and follow Jesus, which is the second word, follow We follow Jesus, not like follow the leader, like Jesus is walking and we're walking behind him, but we pattern our lives after his. We pattern our ways after his. We watch how Jesus works. We watch what he does. We listen to what he says, and we hang out with him and we be with him. Following Jesus is a life responding to God. Following Jesus gets inside of us. Following Jesus as a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit internalizes the resurrected life and is lived out as we follow him. Another word for follow is faith, but we have to be careful with the word faith because some people look at that and say, oh, he was a person of great faith. But you have to ask the question, faith in what? Faith in itself is just an empty, neutral shell. What makes you believer is the object of your faith, faith in Jesus Christ, that he went to a cross, that he died for my, his, my sin, that I could be lived, live again in his resurrection. Faith carries us in to this. This is how we become a Christian. We repent and we follow. We repent and we have faith. We repent and we believe in who God is and what he has done. The last gospel word is saturate. Saturate your soul with the life and the story of Jesus. Saturate your soul. Preach this gospel to yourself regularly. Say, Jesus, I thank you that you became my sin and you went to the cross. You paid my debt before a holy God and you give me life. Let me live a life that's pleasing to you by your spirit. Let me live this morning. Let me say words that glorify you and honor you. Let me do actions that glorify and honor you. We worship each day. We would be with God each day. And I want to give you a tool that can help you. Saturate your mind and your heart with who Jesus is. It's the best book I have ever read on the life of Jesus Christ. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. 
and we have 20 copies or so free for you to take in the Welcome Center. Take one if you promise to read it. If you're not going to read it, just let someone else take it because we have limited supply. But if you're going to read it, take it for free. It's at the Welcome Center. You can have a copy. The best book by far I read about the life of Christ. And the chapters are short. You can read it quickly if you take a chapter a day. Also, if you're not a reader, there's a podcast on this book called Gentle and Lowly. The podcast is 14 days. It's three to four minutes along each day. You can listen to this 14 days, three to four minutes a day on the podcast, and you'll get a gist of the whole book. I totally encourage you to use this. It will help saturate your heart and mind. And what a better thing for us to do is we wrap up this series and mark today. Repent. Follow. Saturate. The Christian life is about living the resurrected life. What a better way to wrap up this than to take communion together. But before we take communion together, I just want to say something. If you are here and you've never ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never given your life to follow him, I want to encourage you to do that today. Go before him and say, God, I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you and ask forgiveness of your sins. And then invite him into your life. God, will you come into my life that I would follow you? Do that. And if you've done that and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe your heart has wandered, maybe you've gotten caught up with the little ducks of life and you made something big, you made a mountain out of a molehill and forgotten the glory and the resurrected resurrection of Jesus, repent, ask for forgiveness. Renew your vision upon Christ. I want to give you time before we go in communion to think through all that and respond to God the way he's speaking to you now. Maybe some of you are just supposed to sit in the silence and reflect upon him. Maybe some of you are supposed to confess sin that he brings to mind. Maybe some of you are supposed to have that conversation that I talked about and invite him into your life right now. I'm just going to give you some time right now to spend time with God and do what he's leading you to do. Father God, we thank you that through the life of Jesus, broken sinners can be resurrected like he was. That you can pull us out of our sin and our shame and our regret and give us new life. There's nothing like that. God, I ask that you would allow the reality and the truth of that to shatter all of our preconceptions of life and let that become front and center 
and help us to know what that truly means. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Take the communion elements that you have and open them. And take the bread. On the night when our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And after supper, he raised this cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of redemption. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness. We thank you for the gift of salvation. And all these things we can celebrate because your son Jesus is no longer dead. But after going to the cross, he was buried and he rose again and he is alive. God, I pray for us as a church body across you that the power and reality of the resurrection would sink into our minds and our hearts and ooze out our pores. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.